Well, thank you, and shalom. Ah, well done. I'm Andrew Barrett. I'm the director of Jews for Jesus uh, in Canada. I've been serving the Lord uh, with Jews for Jesus uh, for 36 years. I began my ministry in California in, in 1983, served on the West Coast for a while, as well as in Boston, and then moved overseas, served in South Africa and in Israel and in Germany. And for the past 22 years, I've been in Canada, where there's about 400,000 Jewish people. Many don't understand Jews for Jesus. They think that it's an oxymoron or a contradiction. I guess maybe it's something like vegetarians for roast beef. <laughs> and I had always thought that too. I grew up in a Jewish community, in a Jewish neighborhood in New York City, and in my mind there were Jews and there were others, and all the others were Christians, and everybody who was not Jewish was a Christian, and these two things didn't come together. I was a university graduate student studying astronomy and physics at the Florida Institute of Technology in Melbourne, Florida, uh, walking across the student union one day, heading to my office. And as I walked into the building, somebody handed me this, this Gideon's Bible. This is the actual one I got in 1981. And I looked at it. I knew what it was. It was a book for Christians, not a book for Jews. And I didn't know what to do with it. Do I hand it back? Do I give it away? Do I throw it out? I didn't know what a Jew did with the New Testament. I knew that it wasn't for me, it was for Christians. I had a friend, I often saw her on campus with a Bible, so I figured I could offload this onto her. So I went up to her office, and she was there, and I saw her, and I said, hey, Dr. Petty, the Gideons are downstairs, they're handing out these Bibles, and I got one, and I reached across to her, and I offered it to her, and I said, here, it's for you. And then she said the funniest thing. She said, no, Andrew, it's for you. And then I realized, oh, she doesn't know I'm Jewish. So I'll tell her, and then she'll apologize to me. And she'll take this off of my hands. So I regrouped, and I said, oh, I guess you don't realize I'm Jewish. And I went again. And she said, well, then that's great. Then this book is especially for you. I said, no, it's not. It's for Christians. It's not for Jews. She said, no, Andrew, this is a Jewish book. I said, no, it's a Christian book. So she said, look, open up to the first book and read the first chapter and go to the first verse. So I did, and this is what I read. The book of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. And then it struck me, three Jews. And I never read anything like that before. I never heard of anything like that before. I was incredulous, and I was curious. How was this even possible? And that was the beginning of my journey, eventually putting my faith and my trust in Jesus and sensing a call to service after that and beginning serving in 1983. And I'll tell you more about that later, more about Jews for Jesus. But first, we're going to share together this presentation, Christ and the Passover. Now, you may be wondering, what does Jesus have to do with the Passover? Passover is Jewish. Well, so was Jesus. And not only did he celebrate the Passover every year while he dwelt among us, I think you'll find that he's clearly pictured in the story of Passover, as well as all the symbols of Passover. For the story of Passover is the story of our liberation from bondage. But more importantly, the message of Passover, it's the promise of redemption. This morning, as I share with you this traditional Passover setting, it's my hope and prayer that you'll view it as more than just as an explanation of a commemorative meal, but that you'll view it as I do, as an object lesson on the life and mission of the Lamb of God, who comes to take away the sin of the world. Look closely, because if you do, you'll see his death and his resurrection. You'll see the promise of his return. 
It's going to read to you from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22. It says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go, make preparations for us to eat the Passover. And then verse 13 says, They left. They found things just as Jesus told them. So they prepared the Passover. Now the first night of Passover, which begins next week, begins a seven-day holiday called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. During that time, we eat nothing that contains any yeast or leaven. Why no leaven? Well, throughout Scripture, leaven is frequently used as a symbol of sin. In olden times, in ancient times, just a small piece of leaven was used to ferment an entire portion of dough. It was the leaven that caused the dough to rise, to become puffed up, just as sin causes us to become puffed up, but it's in our own eyes. So for this time, we eat no leaven as a way of saying that we want to break the daily sin cycle in our own lives. As a matter of fact, in many Jewish homes, for six weeks prior to the Passover, the house would undergo a complete spring cleaning. We'd remove all the cakes and the cookies, the biscuits, the bread, the cereal, anything that has any leaven in it. Now, this is usually the work of the woman of the house. But did you notice that Luke said that Jesus sent two men to prepare the Passover? Now, perhaps he sent two men because in Judaism, it's the man who has standing before God. Not only when it comes to praying, but when it comes to ceremonial preparation as well. So, if you really think about it, it should be the man who's cleaning the house for these six weeks. Well, guys, don't you think there's got to be a loophole there somewhere? Well, there is, fortunately for us. We've come up with a unique solution to this delicate problem. True, we say the house is spotless, because for the past six weeks it's been cleansed of every single speck of leaven. Well, almost every speck. You see, what happens is, is that the woman will hide a few crumbs of leaven somewhere in the house. And it's up to the man to find them. So, the night before Passover, the man would return home from work and take up some strange-looking cleaning tools. A wooden spoon, a white feather, and a white cloth. And he goes throughout the house on what we call in Hebrew, Bedikat Chametz, the search for the leaven. But where could the crumbs be? Well, anywhere, in the attic or behind a refrigerator, under a piece of carpeting, anywhere. But fortunately for him, his wife has been good enough to hide those crumbs the same place she hid them the year before. So it's without too much difficulty that the man would finally discover those crumbs. And with a steady hand, sweep the crumbs into the spoon with the feather. Now, since these crumbs represent sin, the man is not permitted to touch them. So he takes the whole thing, wraps it in the cloth. Now he takes this down to a large bonfire that's burning in the courtyard of the local synagogue. All the men of the community have gathered there, and each one would throw his bundle of leaven into the flame. Then the man will proudly return home, where he'll declare, Now I have purged my house of all leaven. The house has been cleansed. It's now ready for the Passover celebration. If you remember from the book of Exodus, the children of Israel were instructed to eat that first Passover meal in great haste, right? The scripture says that their loins had to be girded up 
their stabs in their hands, their sandals on their feet. They were ready to go out of the land of bondage at a moment's notice. But today, things are different. And we would relax at the table and recline on pillows. You see, in ancient Near Eastern societies, only people who were free could recline at the table. Only people who were already redeemed. Also, the head of the household would wear these special ceremonial garments. The father would wear a white robe like this, which is called a kittle. A kittle. Now, it's white because in Jewish tradition, white is often seen as one of the colors of royalty. Also, Jewish men often cover their heads as a sign of respect before God. But today at Passover, instead of wearing the usual yarmulke or skull cap, the man would wear something a little more elaborate. You see, the father wears these royal robes, but this, which is a symbol of a crown, because today at Passover, the head of the house is like a king. And as a king, he would lead his family through the Passover Seder. Seder is a Hebrew word which means order, because the Passover Seder follows a specific order of events, which is found in this book, which is called the Haggadah, which means the telling, the telling of the story of Passover. The Passover would begin with the lighting of the candles. Now, this is usually the duty and the honor of the woman of the house. Now, after she lights the candles, she would recite a traditional Hebrew blessing. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to light the Passover candles. Now it's significant for us that a woman lights the candles, for it reminds us that the Messiah, who is called the light of the world, would come to us not by seed of man, but by seed of woman and the will of God. Just as the prophet Isaiah foretold, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. He would be a light, a light to light the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. Passover is not just a meal, it's a banquet. It's not just a service, it's a celebration. And while a meal and service may take an hour or so, the Passover celebration will take four hours. During that time, each adult will drink and refill his cup four times. Four cups to commemorate God's fourfold promise to the children of Israel. He promised that he would be their God, that they would be his people, that he'd bring them out of the land of bondage, and that he'd place them in the place of his promise. Four cups, four promises. The first cup, the Kiddush cup, the cup of sanctification. Second cup is called the cup of plagues. The cup of plagues. Now the third cup, that's the focal point of the entire service. The cup taken after dinner. It's called the cup of redemption. The final cup is called the cup of Hallel or the cup of praise. It's with the first cup, the Kiddush cup. Holding the Kiddush cup aloft, he thanks God Almighty, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech olam borei periha gafen. Amen. So the service has now begun. And at this point in the service, a child would stand up in order to ask the meaning of Passover. He or she would recite the traditional four questions of Passover, which are found in the Haggadah. 
The first question is this. It's why. Why is this night different from all other nights? Those of us who know the story of Passover are obligated to respond to the question. And we say this is because of what the Lord did for us when he brought us out of the land of bondage. We say it's when the Lord redeemed us. We say it's when the Lord redeemed us, but with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. You see, redemption, it comes up over and over again. Redemption, it's the very heart of Passover. But Passover imparts to us more than God's message of redemption. Passover imparts God's means of redemption. His means of redemption, which was accomplished through the sacrifice of a spotless Passover lamb. If you remember from the book of Exodus, the children of Israel were instructed, take a whole spotless lamb, roast it without breaking its bones, and then take the blood of those lambs and apply it to the doorposts of your houses. So they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the top of the doorpost, and they took the blood of the lamb and they put it on the two side posts. And because of their obedience to that command, but more importantly, because of their faithfulness, right? Their faithfulness in the effectiveness of that provision of blood, they were spared, weren't they? For when the angel of death, the tenth and most terrible plague, came upon Egypt at midnight, and when the angel of death saw that blood on the doorposts of the houses of the children of Israel, the scriptures tell us that death was forced to pass over. That's where we get the name Passover. In Hebrew, the word is Pesach, the holiday which commemorates the time when death literally passed over the houses of Israel because of the blood, the blood of the lamb, the spotless Passover lamb. What a mighty act of redemption. But still, it's a picture for us, isn't it? It's a picture of an even greater redemption that was still far off and still to come. For just as none of the bones of those first spotless lambs were to be broken, so too none of Jesus' bones would be broken in his death. And just as the children of Israel had to apply in faith, didn't they? They had to apply in faith the blood of the spotless lamb to the doorposts of their houses, trusting that death would pass over. So too must we apply in faith the blood of the spotless lamb shed on the cross of Calvary. That is the blood of the new covenant that we apply in faith as well to the doorposts of our hearts and our souls, trusting as well that death will pass over. It's by the blood of the Lamb, isn't it, that Israel was redeemed. And by the blood of the Lamb does God continue to work, even today, even now. The child then asks the second question, why on this night do we eat only unleavened bread? And we respond and we say, this is because our ancestors, in their great haste to leave Egypt, they had to take their bread with them while it was still flat. Now this is what's called a matzatash, a matzatash, a pouch, which contains three layers of matzah, three layers of unleavened bread. Inside this pouch, each layer is separated by a small piece of cloth. At this point in the service, the father would expose and remove the middle layer of unleavened bread. He'd recite a blessing break it in two, and set one half aside. The other half, he gives a very special name. That name is Afi Komen. Afi Komen. Can you try saying that with me? Afi Komen. Good, you all speak Greek. That's a Greek word, and it means 
he who comes after. He who comes after. Well, that's precisely what happens. Something very strange is done with the afikomen right now. It's wrapped up in this pouch, and then it's buried. It's hidden from view. It's not taken right now. But later on, the service cannot continue without it. Now the child asks the final two questions. Why on this night do we eat only bitter herbs? And why do we dip into salt water twice? Let me explain by showing you this. This is called a Passover plate. And despite its appearance, it is not used for deviled eggs. I know you were thinking that. A traditional piece of food from the Passover meal is placed in each one of those compartments. And each food will paint a picture or give us a portrait of God's plans and purposes in redeeming his people. The first piece of food is called karpas or greens. Usually we use this parsley, sometimes lettuce. Now these greens, they represent life. Life. But before we eat the greens, we have to dip them. We dip them into salt water, which represents the tears of life. This food reminds us, it reminds us that life, but a life that is without redemption, is a life that is immersed, immersed in tears. The next piece of food is called katsedet, which is the root, the root of the bitter herb. Usually we use an onion, sometimes a horseradish root. Now this food reminds us that the root of life is often quite bitter, as it certainly was, wasn't it, for the children of Israel while they were in bondage and slavery to Pharaoh. The root of life is bitter. Life without redemption is immersed in tears. The next piece of food is called maror, which is the bitter herb itself. We use freshly ground horseradish. Now the Haggadah instructs us that we're supposed to eat a tablespoon of horseradish. Any volunteers? Now you know what happens when you eat a tablespoon of horseradish. You cry, right? As a matter of fact, you have absolutely no choice in the matter. This is between the horseradish and your sinuses, and the horseradish always wins. But there's a serious side to the tears. The tears which you are commanded to shed are there to remind you how bitter and filled with tears your life would be without redemption. Now, by way of contrast to that food, we have a food called charoset, which reminds us of the mortar. The mortar that the children of Israel used to make bricks for Pharaoh. We take chopped raisins and nuts and honey and apple and cinnamon and mix it into a paste that resembles mortar. And as you can imagine, this tastes sweet. So the question is, well, why? Why are we using a sweet mixture to represent such a bitter labor? This sweet mixture represents the bitter labor and life of Israel as they made bricks for Pharaoh. Why a sweet mixture? Well, the Haggadah tells us the answer. It tells us that even the hardest and the bitterest of labor, and even the hardest and the bitterest of life, is still sweetened with the promise of what? Redemption. Now, before the Passover meal is eaten, we're commanded to eat an egg. But the egg is given a special name. The name is Chagigah. You see, the Chagigah was the name given to the special temple Passover sacrifice. We take eggs that are white, and we roast them in the oven, which turns them brown. But then we open the egg up and give a little bit out to everybody at the table. But before we actually eat the egg, we have to dip it into salt water, which represents what? 
tears, right. The Chagigah is a token of grief to us as we remember the destruction of that temple in the year 70 AD. But it's not just a token of grief. It's also a symbol of hope and new life. Because inside every egg is still the hope and the promise of a new life. Now the final item on the plate is a bone. This is the shank bone of a lamb. Passover is called the feast of the Passover lamb. But today, Passover lamb is not served. That's because in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed, and along with it, the altar onto which the sacrifices were made. So from that time to this day, no sacrifice is made, no lamb is served. The presence of the egg and the bone brings to mind sacrifices which are no longer made. But more importantly, the presence of the egg and the bone should bring to mind an interesting question. With no temple, no altar, no sacrifice, how is forgiveness then made possible for the people of God? The book of Leviticus speaks clearly. Moses was telling the children of Israel, I have given it to you on the altar to make the atonement. Now some people might say, well, okay, maybe that was important 2,000 years ago, but it can't be important today. Well, in principle it must, because the scriptures tell us that we have to take the story of Passover personally as if you yourself were being redeemed out of the land of bondage. When we read the story of Exodus, it's as if you yourself are being redeemed out of the land of Egypt with the children of Israel. These items, they just don't speak about those people as well. They speak about us, don't they? This is about us. It's about our life and our tears, our bitterness, our sweetness, our hope and our affliction, our destiny. But with no temple, no altar, no sacrifice, how is redemption from that bitterness then possible with no Lamb of God? How? Well, the New Testament provides us with that glorious resolution. John the Baptist was baptizing his disciples in the Jordan River. He looked up. He saw a Jewish man coming forward for baptism. And we remember what he said. His words, they echo throughout all eternity. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's how. Not through the sacrifice of those lambs year after year after year, but through the sacrifice of the spotless Lamb of God, slain once and for all and forever, even before the foundations of the world, the Messiah himself, Jesus. The second cup, the cup of plagues. Now in Jewish tradition, a full cup represents complete joy. But at this point in the service, our joy is incomplete, and we start to pour out some of the contents of the cup before we drink it. We diminish its contents, diminishing our joy. We pour it out ten times to remember the ten plagues poured out upon the land of bondage. We mourn their loss, expressing sorrow over their destruction. But more importantly, we learn this tragic lesson because Pharaoh defied God. And as a result, there was death. And so this tragic lesson that we learn is that if God is clearly and specifically directing you, you should by all means be obedient. But today at Passover, it's a day of rejoicing, isn't it? It's a day of thanksgiving. It's a day to praise God. Today at Passover, we in the body of Christ, we can praise God. Because the angel of death passed over the houses of Israel. We can praise God because the children of Israel were redeemed from the land of bondage. But more importantly, we can praise God because those of us who know him have been redeemed, haven't we? We've been redeemed from an even greater bondage through our faith in the Messiah of Israel. Through him, because of him, 
as a result of what he did on Calvary's cross, all of us can pass over, can't we? We can all pass over from death to everlasting life. Well now, in between the second and third cups, that is the time for the great Passover meal. I can't serve you one of those, but I want to take a short break and just tell you a little bit about our ministry with Jews for Jesus here in North America and around the world. You should have gotten one of these in your bulletins. It's a Jews for Jesus Christ in the Passover brochure. If you could just take it out now and wave it to me so I get some fresh air up here. Very good. You know that we Jews, we love traditions, and a tradition that we have at Jews for Jesus is called the tradition of the tearing of the pamphlet together on the count of three in Hebrew. So to participate, you must open that, and you'll see it's three panels, and one has a perforation. So fold it along that perforation, and then I'm going to count to three in Hebrew, and we'll all cut these cards together, okay? This is really fun, just trust me. Okay, ready? Echad, Shtayim, Shalosh. Oh, well done. Now, unless you're unusually coordinated, you should now only have two pieces, a big one and a small one. The large part you can take home and use it as a reference for the information I gave you this morning. And the small card, I hope that you can return in the love offering after the presentation. Love to be in touch with you. This is an involvement card, not a pledge card. But if you would take a moment, fill out the card, and check off the boxes on both sides, provide your email and mailing address. I'd love to come into your inbox every four to six weeks, tell you a little bit about what we're doing in Jews for Jesus, and invite you to partner with us in prayer. I'd very much appreciate that. Our ministry is in 24 cities, in 14 countries, reaching out to some 16 and a half million Jewish people around the world. But there seems to be an interesting shift in gravity in that we're seeing more and more Jewish people in Israel hearing and responding to the gospel than any other Jewish community around the world. Maybe when you think of Israel, you think of terrorism or darkness or people not being able to get along and conflict and all that may be true. But when you think of Israel, I want you also to think about the gospel. I want you to think about Israelis and Arabs hearing and responding to the gospel because it's, it's an exciting time for us to be there. It's our biggest and most substantial work, and there are more Jewish people there hearing and responding than any other community in the world. I brought a short video with me this morning to share with you some of the excitement that we have for what God is doing in Israel, and specifically a new initiative that we began in reaching out in Jerusalem. So if you could show that video now, I'd appreciate it. I'm Dan Sered, and I'm the Israel Director of Jews for Jesus. We've mapped out Israel. We've noticed that there are 12 different geographic regions, and this is by far the most exciting outreach that we've employed here in Israel. We're here in Jerusalem with the University and Yeshiva team. Brought tons of cases of bottled water and hand them out. We've been able to talk to a lot of people. What's happening here is an event that we've called Art Never Stops, and it's a kind of jam, painting and sculpting. It's really fun to get a group of people together and see how people really bond and build connections. We have been in the muck and mire of this little river just cleaning out trash to just love on the people of Israel. And the salvation stories of what God has worked during this month-long campaign. Russian speakers still are the most open to the gospel. 
We're gonna take you in and see a house we've been working on. It's a woman who's working as a prostitute and as part of our team to reach out to the homeless, drug addicted and prostitutes. We're just fixing up her home to share the love of Christ. We're reaching out to Orthodox women and we're reaching into a community that for many years and in many ways has been unreached with the gospel. What does Mashiach do then? If we all sin, we, we need help. Mashiach, you're praying for it, is the same one that Christians are praying for to him for return. How could we really impact a larger percent of the population? So we began to pray together and toss around ideas and do some design thinking. A bunch of guys teams and girls teams are competing. Never would have thought it happened this fast. Selling some of our handmade items that talk about who we are and things like that. Looking for opportunities to engage the community. We're hoping to see these kinds of stories of change all across the city. Jewish people in Israel and Jewish people in Canada and Michigan are hearing the gospel in the marketplace. Most Jewish people hear the gospel from their Christian friends and neighbors and coworkers and classmates and peers. If you want to have an adventure in sharing Christ, then share Christ with Jewish people that you may know. There's uh, over 10,000 Jewish people who live here in the Grand Rapids area, and many of them might be spiritually hungry. If you want to have an adventure in sharing Christ, share Christ with Jewish people. Pray for them. Pray for the ministry of Jews for Jesus. We'd really appreciate it. Please take a minute and fill out that card and drop it in the offering, and you can receive our emails and our newsletter and you can hear stories about what we're doing here and around the world. We very much appreciate your prayers. There's a table in the back with some DVD testimonies and free literature. Help yourself to those. There's also some books for sale that I could recommend to you. This book is called Christ in the Passover. It goes into a lot more detail concerning many of these important elements. A very handy reference tool to have, especially during the Lenten season. This book is very popular. It's called Stories, Stories of Jews for Jesus. It's a book of 15 chapters, and each chapter tells the story of a Jewish person and how they gave their lives to Christ. I especially like this book because my testimony is on chapter 12. So please be involved by praying for us and receiving our literature. You can also be involved financially as the church has graciously agreed to let us take a love offering for my ministry at the end of the service. And I do need and welcome your gifts. Remember to give to Jews for Jesus simply because you believe in what we do. You believe in getting more of the gospel out to more Jewish people. That's what Jews for Jesus is all about, and the love offering this afternoon will go directly towards my ministry of reaching Jewish people here in the United States, Canada, and around the world. But whether or not you give a gift or not, I hope you can take a minute and fill out that card and drop it in the offering. If you'd like to write a check, you can do that. You can make it payable to Jews for Jesus. You can also give by cash or conveniently by credit card. There's a form on the front that lets you do that. Make sure you fill out the form cleanly and completely so that we can send you a proper tax receipt. We'd like you to join us as we reach out together to the lost sheep, the house of Israel. Well, after the great Passover meal is served, we gather together for a short time, but it's the focal point of the evening revolving around the third cup, the cup of redemption. But the service cannot continue. Do you remember earlier something was broken? Then it was buried? Well, it now needs to be brought back or the service cannot continue. Do you remember what that was called? No? <laughs> the afikomen. The afikomen. That's okay. Once I did this and somebody yelled out that it was the avocado. So all the children search for the afikomen. One finds where it is. It's brought back to the father. And then the father unwraps it and exposes it. And then breaks it again and again. 
into these small pieces. And this small olive-sized piece is taken along with the third cup, the cup of redemption. Look familiar? Well, it should, for this is the very origin of our communion service. And not only that, where else do we get a clear picture of our Messiah than in this tradition of the afikomen, broken, buried, and brought back? Even the matzah, which is unleavened. Remember what unleavening speaks of? It's a symbol of sinless nature. We can see him portrayed in the bread, which is striped. And this is a picture for us, a portrait, because Jesus was striped, wasn't he? Even as the prophet Isaiah foretold he would be, and with his stripes we are healed. But we can see him portrayed in the bread as well, which is pierced. Can you see that? It's pierced. And this is a picture for us as well, a portrait, because Jesus was pierced, wasn't he? Even as the prophet Zechariah foretold, and they shall look upon him whom they have pierced, and they'll mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. But we can see him not only in the bread, we can see him in the pouch. Remember this pouch? Three layers of unleavened bread, each one separated by a small piece of cloth. There's quite a disagreement as to the meaning of this ancient unity, this ancient three in one. Some people say that the unity of the pouch bears witness to the unity of ancient Israel, the priests and the Levites and the children of Israel. Some people say that the unity of the pouch bears witness to the unity of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But why is the middle layer broken and buried and brought back? Well, nobody really knows. But then again, why even search for explanations? Why not just accept the explanation that's so clearly given in the design of the pouch itself? For there are three layers there, yet it forms a unity, a tri-unity. A Hebrew word which may mean such a unity is the Hebrew word echad, echad. That word brings to mind God's word spoken through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Moses was famously crying out to Israel, and he said these words, he said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. But the word he uses for one is echad. And echad literally means a unity. So the picture that we have is of the Father removing the middle layer of the echad, of the unity, of the oneness. He removes it so that he can make it visible while the other two remain hidden from view. And we know the truth of this picture from the Gospel of John, chapter 1. John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. The Word became visible, and we beheld His glory. And He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. But to those who received Him, He gave them the right to be called children of God, even to those who believed on His name. We Jews who know the Messiah, know that the unity of the pouch bears witness to the unity of one God revealed in three persons, God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Why is the middle layer broken and buried and brought back? I think it's a picture of our Messiah, broken, buried, and brought back. This is my body, he said, broken for all of us. Do this in remembrance of me. The third cup is red to remind us of the blood. The precious blood that was spilt by those first Passover lambs. Those lambs were sacrificed. Their blood was spilt in order to redeem Israel, right? To buy Israel back 
from bondage and slavery to Pharaoh. But in the very same way, the blood of another Passover lamb was spilt, the Messiah Jesus, in order to redeem us, to buy us back from bondage and slavery to sin. That's why it was concerning this third cup, the cup taken after dinner. The scriptures tell us that Jesus stood up from that last supper, a Passover meal like this one. And the scripture says that he picked up the cup after dinner and he pointed to it and he said, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The very new covenant that was already promised to us by God through the prophet Jeremiah. Listen to Jeremiah's words. He says, behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah not like the covenant I made with your forefathers. In the day that I brought you by the hand out of the land of bondage, the covenant which you broke, although I was a husband to you. For in those days I'll put my law within you, on your hearts I shall write it, I will be your God, you shall be my people. The third cup, the cup of redemption, is taken with the broken piece of Afikomen as a way of remembering the spilt blood, the broken bodies of those first Passover lambs. Our Passover lamb, is Jesus. The final cup, the cup of Hallel, the cup of praise, from the Hebrew word hallelujah, praise the Lord. We give thanks and praise to God through this cup after seeing his mighty deeds of redemption. Now there's one last cup which I haven't told you about, from which nobody drinks, the cup of Elijah. As a matter of fact, in many Jewish homes, an entire place setting is set here for Elijah the prophet. Why this longing for Elijah? Well, it's recorded in the Old Testament book of the final prophet, Malachi. Malachi tells us that Elijah is to announce the coming of the Messiah. Elijah will announce it. That's why at this point in the service, a child stands up and goes to the front door of the house and opens the door into the night looking for Elijah, hoping Elijah will accept the invitation of the open door, enter the house and sit at his chair drink from his cup, thereby announcing the coming of the Messiah. And we really used to do this in my home. When my sister would open up the door, then I would peek over Elijah's cup and then wonder what would happen if the juice started to go down. But it never did. But then again, we know that Elijah has already come, don't we? Because when Jesus spoke of the prophet John the Baptist, he said, if you care to believe it, he himself is Elijah, the one who was to come. The prophet, the forerunner, has come, and so has the Messiah. And many people might say, well, maybe that's nice. Isn't that nice the way God has revealed himself? Isn't it nice the way we can see God's plan through history and scripture, through symbols, through God's people? Isn't that nice? Well, no, I don't think we can call it nice. When someone does you a favor, a favor is nice. But God didn't do us a favor. He redeemed us from bondage and slavery to sin, not just nice but amazing grace. Amen? Let's pray. By the blood of the Lamb was Israel redeemed. By the blood of the Lamb do you redeem and work and save even today. So we thank you for the blood of the new covenant applied to the doorposts of our hearts so that death may pass over and we can enter into that promised land of hope and peace and salvation. Yes, even in the midst of bitterness. So we give you thanks and praise for your mighty deeds of redemption. You are the Lord, our rock, and you're the great redeemer. And we give you thanks and praise in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.